This message was recorded on the campus of Watchta Hills College. For more information, visit our website, www.ohc.org. Our Father in Heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity that we have to have our Bibles, recognizing that individuals gave their lives so that we could have this book. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That your words would become sweet. And we pray that you would create in us a deeper desire for you. So bless us this evening. Lord, we need help. We need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds to impress and to convict our hearts. We pray that you would tailor my feeble words this evening through the agency of the Holy Spirit as we reflect on the Word of God that we would receive exactly what we need individually. Lord, only you can do this, and Lord, we surrender ourselves to you tonight. Speak to us, we pray. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles this evening to Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. We'll be looking at three different passages this evening. The first one is found in Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. This is known as the Walk to Emmaus. I want to read it through and then give some observations regarding this passage. Before we read verse 13, I want to give you a little bit of background what has taken place prior to this walk to Emmaus. Jesus has died. He has risen. And the disciples do not know what has happened to the body. There's a report from women that have gone to the tomb, and there's a report that his body is no longer there. And there there is this unique, fascinating story in the last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24, and it takes up a great portion of this chapter. Now, when you read the Bible, it's important to know how much space the Bible writer dedicates to a particular passage. And this space in Luke chapter 24 is significant. In other words, there is a particular point that needs to be brought out by Luke, who wants to enunciate and elaborate a little bit about this passage. And there are two obscure disciples that are going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, these two disciples have never come into the biblical narrative before. This is the first time they come on the scene. Jesus has died. He's risen. They don't know that he's risen. And this is the beginning of a very depressing and downtrodden walk, the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And the conversation 
is quite depressing. And as the story goes, Jesus walks with them the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So let's pick up in our story here in verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you a stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? This almost becomes painful, right? Because he's Jesus. What's the problem? They think he's dead. The solution, if you're looking at it from an efficiency standpoint, is I'm Jesus, right? We live in a Western society. It's all about efficiency and effectiveness. The most effective way to cure the problem of the disciples here in Luke chapter 24 and these two obscure disciples that you've never seen before, these are not Peter, James, and John, Cleopas and the other one, we never know their name, is to come up upon them and say, here's my hands and my feet, I'm, I'm Jesus. But, but Jesus says, what things? Now the question is, does Jesus know what things are depressing them? Absolutely. And, and so, so he's, engaging them in a conversation for a particular purpose and a particular point. What things? And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and own rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. And yes, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they'd also seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And here it is, verse 25, 26, and verse 27. Read it carefully as I read. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And verse 27 is the point. Verse 27 is why Jesus went on the walk to Emmaus. Let's read it here. And beginning at Moses. Now, 
What books did Moses write? All right? The Pentateuch. Genesis to Deuteronomy. And beginning at Moses, and how many of the prophets? And all the prophets. So let's put it together here. Beginning at Moses, Genesis, and all the prophets to Malachi. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is the greatest Bible study in history. Talk about exhaustive. I'm not saying exhausting, exhaustive. Right? Notice the way that this verse is framed. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, on this walk to Emmaus, Jesus is giving them the most phenomenal Bible study in history. That must have been some Bible study. Don't you wish you were there? Jesus walks up, doesn't show them who he is. But he says, let me show you who I am. And he refers them to this. And it's an exhaustive Bible study from Genesis to Malachi. That was probably a long walk to Emmaus. Jesus, I can just imagine, Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Text after text, and it says, he went through all of them. All of them. And then in verse 28, so they just went through this exhaustive Bible study, and he did everything. Genesis to Revelation, every messianic prophecy, every messianic text. Then they near their home. Then they drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated he would have gone farther. In other words, his job was done. Give the Bible study, and he was about to keep going. And, And by the way, This is a good plug for hospitality. Amen. Hmm? I mean, if they did not give the gift of hospitality, they would have missed out on the Son of God. So so Jesus is just about, I mean, he doesn't intrude in people's homes. He's like, okay, you know, I guess we got here. All right, I'll see you guys. And he's about to walk off. And they're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Like, Hey, why, why don't you stay with us? Right? Why don't you? So, so he stays with them, right? And then verse 29, but they, they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. And now it came to pass. He sat down at the table with them and he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, this is what's happening. So they're sitting at the, t- the table with Jesus, and, and they're like, hey, hey, can, can, you, can you say the blessing, please? Can, can you do that? And, and he's like, sure. And, and he breaks the bread. And they're like, ah, 
wait a minute. Like, that looks strangely familiar. Like, And then the Bible says their eyes were opened. And they're like, it's Jesus. And the Bible says he vanished. He vanished from their sight. It's like, breaks the bread. It's Jesus. He's gone. And notice what they said, their reflection. Then they turned to one another and said, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the Scriptures to us? And so the story goes, they run all the way back to Jerusalem the seven miles that they've just run down. (laughs) They run all the way back, stumbling maybe in the dark, but with joy in their hearts. Jesus is alive. Amen? And so they run back. The Zarephus Aegis says that someone was going back with them. going back with them, and you'll see it here. They run back to Jerusalem. Let's pick it up here in verse 33. So they rose up the very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And in verse 36, look look what happens. And as they said these things, who stood in their midst? Jesus stood in their midst. So here, here's the narrative. Jesus walks with them down the road to Emmaus, gives a Bible study. He, he, they see who he is. Then they run all the way back. Jesus goes back with them, appears to the rest of the disciples. And notice what happens here. Verse 36, and as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be to you. And they were terrified and frightened. And supposing that they had seen a spirit, and he said to them, Why are you troubled and why doubts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, and as I myself handle me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones. And when he had said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food? And he ate the food and then looked Look in verse 44. Look in verse 44. And he said to them, These are the words which I had spoken to you while I was still with you, and all the things must be fulfilled which were, written, which were written in the law of Moses. Have you seen that before? And the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And look at verse 45 in your Bibles. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the what? The Scriptures. Another Bible study. Do you see that? So Luke chapter 24 has two Bible studies. Two. The walk to Emmaus, exhaustive Bible study. They run all the way back. Jesus follows them, goes to the disciples, and gives them another, I believe, exhaustive Bible study. Now, here's the question. Why? 
Why go through all of that trouble? What's the principle that Jesus is trying to convey? Here's one. Jesus wants them to base their faith on this above any experience. This, this is it. This is where he wanted to, their, them to base their authority because he could have come up to them and said, I'm him, light shining from heaven. Like the Mount of Transfiguration, it could have been this spectacular event and would the disciples have believed? Absolutely. But here, Jesus one of the final acts of his life before he goes to heaven, the last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24, is to give an exhaustive Bible study two times. The walk to Emmaus and back in the upper room to enunciate, to, to demonstrate, to, to build on this principle that it is Scripture first above any experience. Even a real experience with Jesus. Jesus wanted them to base their faith on this. On this. Now hold that thought here because we'll go to our second passage of reflection and it's found in the last chapter of the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Who was the book of Acts written to? Theophilus. Who was the book of Luke written to? Theophilus. If you read the beginning of Acts, it says, The former account I have written to you, Theophilus. In other words, it's the sequel. It's the sequel. So the last chapter of Luke ends with the Bible study. Let's look at the last chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 28 and verse 23. There's Jews that have come to Peter's house. He's under Paul's house. He's under house arrest, and they come to his home to talk with him. In verse 23, And so when they had appointed him a day, many came to his lodging, to whom he explained solemnly and testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both, listen to this part, what does your Bible say? From both the law of Moses. Have you seen that before? All right, so, so here they come to his house, and he's giving a what? In the house. He's giving a Bible study in the house. And notice the way that, the, that Luke frames this. He says, He's giving a Bible study in the house from the law of Moses and what? And the prophets. And notice how long this Bible study goes. From morning till evening. From morning to evening. And arguably, the greatest apostle of the New Testament who wrote the majority of the New Testament, the most preeminent figure in the second half of the book of Acts, is giving a phenomenal Bible study from Moses 
and all the prophets. And here, Luke, do you think Luke is trying to tell us something? Ends the book of Luke in chapter 24 with Jesus giving a Bible study and Paul giving a Bible study in the end of Acts. I want to read here a statement from the book Great Controversy. And if you have not read the book Great Controversy, now is as good as time as any. Great Controversy, page 595, and it's the chapter entitled The Scriptures as Our Safeguard. Read that chapter. Here it is. But God would have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these things should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith, before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. Amen? In other words, she's saying that this should be our final authority. And when someone comes with a teaching, we should ask for a plain, thus saith the Lord. Not some obscure passage, but a clear passage. And not only that, but a, a, a I don't know what the right word is, but a, a cast of supporting passages as well. We should ask for a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. Now, the question is, why? Why? Why did Jesus go through so much trouble on the walk to Emmaus to give this Bible study, another Bible study, and then in the book of Acts, Paul is giving another Bible study? And, and, and why is this to be our final authority. After all, we are living in the 21st century and millennials and zennials, I don't know what you call it anymore, but, but are all about experience. That's the age and the era that we're living in right now. Experience is reality. We're getting so, so far into it in postmodernism where it's like if you say it's your experience, that's gospel. We can't judge your experience. Because that's your experience. That's good for you. This age of pluralism. Everyone wants to have an experience. And here, there, there is this, this idea that emerges in this, in this concept of sola scriptura. And let's go to our third and final passage of reflection this evening. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. And here, Peter establishes this idea of how scriptures and experience should be related to by the Christian. 
Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. Let's actually pick it up here in verse 16. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised, what does your Bible say? Fables. In other words, what's a fable? It's a myth. It's a story. It's something that it's been made, that has been made up. It's a fairy tale. So, so he says, look, what we're telling you is the truth. It's not a myth. It's not something that's been made up. It's reality. When we made known unto you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how does he base the reality, the truth of Jesus in the beginning part of his argument here? He says, because we were what? Because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so he begins here stating that, look, what we're telling you is the truth because I was there. Now, that's pretty compelling. He says, look, I was an eyewitness. I saw it with my own eyes. And in a court, that's that's substantive. First person, not second person, not third hand. Peter says, I was there. And then he elaborates on what the there is. Let's, let's go through it. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a what? A voice came from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard the voice which came from heaven when we are with him on the holy mountain. What experience is he talking about here? He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And there were only three individuals that had the privilege of being there. And he was one of them. Peter, James, and John. Now that's pretty substantive, don't you think? Peter says, I was there, right? I saw Jesus. He could have added, I saw Moses and Elijah. I saw Jesus glorified. I'm telling you, he's the real deal. Now, if Peter would have left it there, we would have said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. You were there. I believe. But then if you're reading, especially in the King James Version, I want you to notice what Peter goes on to say in verse 19. He says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. That's a revolutionary statement. What Peter is saying, you have the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, how many of you would like to be there? Uh, I mean, is that an experience? You better believe it. I mean, remember, remember what Peter said? He started saying, like, just, I'll, I'll build each one of you a house. I mean, it was so, he didn't know what he was saying. I don't know. I mean, he just started, I'll build each one of you a house. And so it, it, it was an earth-shattering experience. I mean, you read about Moses, you read about Elijah. They're there, and Jesus is glorified, and you recognize that he is the Son of God. I mean, that's, I mean, sign me up for that. Right? Mount of Transfiguration. It's hard to get. I mean, I mean what, what are you gonna what are you gonna say? I went to, I don't know. I went to a retreat to to try to say that's that's my experience. I mean, talk about the ultimate retreat on the mountaintop. That's that's hard to beat. It's it's up there. It's up there. This generation, how many people would sign up for that? Everybody. 
Absolutely everyone. Even non-believers would sign up for that one. It's up there. But you know what Peter says? You have something more sure. Scripture. I, I just want you to process what he's saying here. This is, this is heavy. Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter says, Scripture. Mount of Transfiguration. Scripture. In other words, Scripture is more of an authoritative, substantive entity, if you can call it that, on which to base your faith. Amen. Then the Mount of Transfiguration. Where should we be spending our time? <laughs> Here. This is it. This is where it's at. Jesus, Paul, Peter. This is it. Great controversy again. Page 593. Here's one of the reasons why God has chosen to make this the ultimate standard of authority and not an experience. One reason. Great Controversy, page 593. So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the Holy Scriptures. She goes on, page 624, and describes an experience. As the crowning act in the drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. The Church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the consummation of her hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come... In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a being of majestic, and listen to this, a being of majestic, dazzling brightness, resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in Revelation. The glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have ever beheld. Talk about an experience. The shout of triumph. Rings in the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. The people prostrate themselves before him while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed his disciples upon the earth. His voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. He looks like Jesus. He sounds like Jesus. He acts like Jesus. Everything you would imagine Jesus being that's him. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He's quoting scripture. 
He heals the diseases of the people. And then, in the assumed character of Christ, and here's the hook. Now, mind you, he looks like Jesus, he sounds like Jesus, he's quoting scripture like Jesus, he's doing miracles. He's got the world in the palm of his hand. It's an experience that we can't even imagine. Do you think those people feel something? You better believe it. Do you think the atmosphere feels spiritual? You better believe it. But here comes the hook. And then in the assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed Sabbath to Sunday and commands all to hallow the day which he has blessed. He declares that those who persist in keeping holy the seventh day, that's us, are blaspheming his name by refusing to listen to his angels sent to them with light and truth. And then she says, this is a strong, almost overmastering delusion. Why did Jesus, Paul, and Peter say that this is the final authority more than any experience, no matter how authentic it may be? One reason is right here. Because if you're living by experience, you're going to swallow this hook, line, and sinker. You're going to be swept away. And then Great Controversy 6.25, she says, Only those who have been diligent students of Scripture and who have received the love of the truth will be shielded from the powerful delusions that takes the world captive. So here we are. Twenty twenty one. And who knows what 2021 is going to be. And the devil is going to do everything to keep you from this book. Everything. Even supplant it with good things. I was reading Hudson Taylor, and he said, the devil will keep you occupied with innocent things like arranging the blinds to, to keep you immersed from this, away from this book. And so the theme this weekend, give me the Bible. And if you're in my hermeneutics class, in issues class, remember this book. Amen. Correlated Bible readings. You can find it in your local bookstore in a couple weeks. Amen. On campus. It's a systematic reading of the Bible and spirit of prophecy. They have a one-year plan, a two-year plan, and five-year plan. You're not required to do this. 
But remember what I said, you receive special grace. Amen. Grace. We've got a plan in place so that you don't feel obligated to read, but there's an opportunity to read. Every student that goes through these halls of learning should be convicted by the Spirit of God to read this book. Amen? And college students, when you graduate from this institution, my prayer and my thrust and my emphasis will be that you will have read the Bible through at least once while you're here. Now, I'm not going to make you do it. No one can make you do anything. And we're not going to put requirements there that, that take the joy away. But we're going to, we're going to, I don't know. We'll, we'll do, you know, we'll, 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 I'm going to exude the passion so that you can feel the, the beauty of what it is to read this book. Amen? Amen. To read this book. Look, Greek, Hebrew, you, you, look, you can master that, but if you haven't read this through, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. To have read this book through at least once and to fall in love with Jesus Christ. And if this is not the center of our education, we failed. We might as well close up. I believe it is the center of our educational process. That's why I'm here. But this needs to be the emphasis and the passion of every staff member to live by this book, to experience this book. Every student to spend time in this book. I tell you, our phones and the internet is the greatest blessing and it's the greatest curse. Put your phone on airplane mode and open this. Amen. Those emails will still be there. Those texts, they'll still be there. Right here. Right here. Look, there's a storm coming, and those angels are holding back those winds because of the command of God. But one day, those winds will be let go. And we're going to see, I mean, if, if this year has taught us anything, just like that, our life can be changed right away. Overnight. And if you think our Constitution is going to hold back great controversy from being fulfilled, think again. Just like that. Changed. And if we're not living by this, reading it, we're going to be swept away. We're going to be swept away. HMS Richards I used to have these tapes that my dad had, HMS Richard Sr., Voice of Prophecy. I'd listen to them. When he spoke, I tell you, 
you knew that the man was a man of God. He read this book two times a year. He read it very quickly in the first couple months of the year and then read it through slowly the rest of the year. Now, the important thing is is not just getting through it. Amen. Ellen White says it's better to take one verse, fix it in the mind, than read the entire you know, whole bunch of pages without a particular purpose in view. Now, if you have a purpose in view and you know what you're structuring, that's different. But if you're just reading aimlessly, it's better to take one passage, memorize it, reflect on it, meditate on it, make it yours, be transformed by it. And if you'd like help in your personal devotional life, talk to your deans. I'm here, Mrs. Clark, all the staff members are here, the chaplain, your teachers. We're here to, to help in this process, to live by the pages of this book. I want to read this article. that I read from a a news website and the the title of this article compelled me to read it. I won't even tell you the the website I found it on because uh, I don't want it to color this, this, this article, because uh, depending on your political persuasion, then I try to stay out of politics. I do, I do stay out of politics by the grace of God, especially in the pulpit. But uh, this article, the title, w- was, was quite interesting, and, and you'll discover why as I, as I read this article. This is a secular individual, Okay. He says, and this is like a personal testimony. It is quite unique, quite unique. He says, things weren't going so well. I wasn't happy. I needed a shake-up in my life, and that's what happened, and I decided to make a career change, leaving my job and coming back to where I was happy in a prior phase of my life. It was risky. For one thing, you're not supposed to leave a job after three months. It was a period of transition. And so I started reading the Bible. (sighs) Secular person. Okay. Now say what you will. Whether you're religious or not, I'm happy to report that those trying times and stormy clouds quickly evaporated as I started reading the Bible. I read Genesis during my last week at my former company. Reading the Bible daily on my iPad became was becoming so immersed in my mind, body, and spirit, and part of my routine at times, I physically wanted to kneel on the subway in prayer as I read on the commute to and from work. I never did that, but I did find a routine of standing all the time as I read and balancing myself without holding on to anything. Nearly everything around me seemed to take on great meaning spiritual meaning. I started realizing my view on life was changing ever so slightly, and as all these good things happened, I was thinking, wait, really? Why? 
And what do I have to do in return? I was becoming more spiritual, more reflective. I pondered the meaning of life more. I wrote a post on the importance of being humble and humility and constantly asked myself during these past hundred days how I can help others more and do more for others. I'm on a mission now. Because even though these hundred days are in the past, his goal was to read the Bible in a hundred days, I can still carry out all that I've read. I constantly refer back to the words of wisdom that I can apply in my life every day to be a better man and a better human being. And say what you want. But I kind of feel like it's a modern miracle in my life that it's turned out the way that it has. And this is how he ends. I hope that you'll consider reading the Bible too. Can you believe this? A secular, a secular website that's got all kinds of, anyways, I mean, secular. And the title was, How Reading the Bible in 100 Days Changed My Life. You never hear someone say, I took a course in biology, or physics, or algebra. Not saying that those subjects are bad, mind you, okay? And I stopped beating my wife. I stopped swearing. I stopped stealing. Transformed me. You never hear a testimony like that. Never. And yet, thousands, thousands. I don't know what the number is, but thousands throughout this scope of human history have read this book, changed their life. Changed their life. Amen? And here at Watchda Hills, you have a tremendous opportunity. An environment that fosters opportunities to spend time in this book. Don't waste it away. Don't squander the opportunity. College students, every Saturday, from four to nine, we're giving you time with God. This is not time to fritter away, especially with sundown coming so early, to be on the internet. Now, we're not going to be doing surveillance or anything like that. But I encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity to spend time with God in this book. Amen.
spend time in this book. Not only on Sabbath evenings, but every day. Amen? Every day. Spend time, but we're giving you that special time from 4 to 9 to read, reflect on, meditate on this book. Beginning next Sabbath. Take advantage of this opportunity. Amen? I want to encourage you to encourage each other. Amen? To support each other as we make this and the reading of this a high priority in our lives. Amen? By the grace of God. I want to make a very simple appeal this evening. How many of you want to say it, Lord? Create in me a deeper desire to spend time in this book. Amen? I mean, notice, amen? Create in me. In other words, you may or may not desire, and if you desire, praise the Lord, you can say, Lord, help me to desire more. Create in me. It's not as though we have to fabricate something. Create in me a deeper desire for you. And look, we've become so jaded by sin and entertainment that when we begin to read this, don't get discouraged. We've acquired a taste for sin. And it takes time to get our taste buds sanctified. Amen? And so, so keep at it. Keep at it. Persist. Just like when you change diet and you go from junk food to wholesome food. Your, your taste buds need to be retrained. And in the same way, we, ha- we have this, this wonderful book. And, and when you begin, especially if you're not used to it, but persist. Persist and wrestle with the Lord and say, Lord, wake me up in the morning. Go to bed early. If you have to eat a lighter supper, eat a lighter supper. Go to bed early and say, Lord, wake me up. May your angel touch me in the morning to wake me up so I can spend time with you. Make a commitment in 2021. That'll be the year of the Bible. And every year after, by the grace of God. You want to make that commitment with me today? Amen? By the grace of God, create in me a deeper desire for this book. Help me to spend time in this book in 2021. Amen? And look, we serve a God of miracles. You spend time in this. You study hard. God will bless you academically. Amen? He'll provide for your needs. We serve a big God. And if you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, He says all these things will be added unto you. Let us pray. Let's kneel together as we pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that your words are spirit, they are life. And Lord, we pray today that you would create in us a deeper desire for you, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Create in us a deeper desire for your word. Lord, sanctify our taste. Expel in us the desire for worldly things. Do for us what we are incapable of doing on our own. Lord, help us to fall in love with you through the reading of your word. And I pray that 2021 would be the year of the Bible. Oh, Lord, help us to spend more time in the Word of God this year than ever before. If the events of the past year tell us anything, it tells us that that we're hearing the footsteps of an approaching God. But Lord, in your mercy, you're holding back the winds. We have a work to do. And Lord, we pray that that we would be rooted and grounded in the rock of Jesus Christ, your word. I pray for every student, every staff member here today. Lord, we pray that not even good things would get in the way of our time with you. So bless us. Help us. We thank you that your biddings are enablings and that within every command is also a promise. So so we ask for your help. We claim it by faith, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.